It's time for Into the RGV. Here's Davis Rankin. I'm Davis Rankin, and you're listening to Into the RGV. Into the RGV is sponsored by Esparza Pest Control, Simmer Technology. Call them at 956-316-0000. This is a podcast from us here at 710KORV. Take a look at the history of the Rio Grande Valley. Now, the Rio Grande Valley is, in fact, not a valley. It's a river delta. But... The Rio Grande Valley is the Rio Grande Valley along the North Mexico border. Years ago, the river, the Rio Grande River, the Rio Bravo still in Mexico, was not a border. It ran through the land, and in some ways it still does. It used to flood, and we were a river delta, but somehow it became the Rio Grande Valley made up of four counties. Cameron, Willacy, which is just north of Cameron on the coast, Hidalgo County, west of Cameron, and then Star County, even further west, up into what some people call the start of the hill country. Today, we're going to be covering the history of Hidalgo County. Francisco Guajardo of the Museum of South Texas History, uh, is it, um, why, I want to say why are we here, but that invites a, a a summary of colonization. I don't know what people know about that anymore. We, We, of course, had to learn it in school. And I always said when it came to people who were Jewish, either had been Jewish in practice uh, or were still secretly Jewish in practice, not to separate them out, but they got to Puerto Veracruz with the early Spanish explorers, and they hook them north. They get north to get away from the Inquisition. And uh, I don't know how many there were or anything like that, but uh, people coming to the frontier just sort of just sort of astounds me, but um, take take us back very quickly to how we got here in South Texas. Were it not for the Spanish coming and Cortez and all that brutality, we arguably would not be here. The age of colonization, the the building of empires, uh, we're a we're the fruit of that. Right. Yeah. No, I think that you know how we get here and why we're here is a very curious story because this was not a desirable place in fact the yeah. desirability of this part of the world you know desirability of this region really becomes almost like a concoction of chambers of commerce and land developers early in the 20th century <laughs> when they branded this place the magic valley a tropical uh, paradise where did uh, okay where did that word the, the phrase magic valley come from do you know who yeah, the, the land developers did that. Okay. Now, the, the, the palm trees and that sort of thing, the sable palm trees had been here, you know, forever. Yeah. And, in fact, you know, when the first Spanish come, you know, Pineda in 1519, you know, they recognized, you know, the palm trees and, and, and even call it, you know, El Valle de Palmas. So mm-hmm. that actually is it goes back to the early 16th, 16th century. But... But the ubiquity of the palm trees, or the big, tall palm trees, those are not native to this. Washingtonians, they call them. Yeah, the Washingtonians, imported from Cuba and the Caribbean. But the the sable palm tree is the one that's native, and that's kind of a short one. It grows next to the bodies of water, you know, the resacas and and the Rio Grande. But not a desirable place. And and this is one of the reasons that this is this is the frontier. You know, it's a it's it's tough, it's hard. Flora and fauna tend to be aggressive. Yeah. So, you know, when the first Spanish come up here, some of the churches that they build are, are called in Señora de Refugio. You know, it's just <laughs> like the churches were refuges, ref, yeah. re, places of refuge yeah. for people who lived here. 
you know, and that's where they, they baptized a lot of the, the indigenous people and that sort of thing. So it's not a desirable place. People, uh, so the, the Crown actually has to pay people to come up here. They have to contract, you know, somebody like Escandon to come up here. And Escandon, who was, uh, you know, an enterprising and adventurous type, would take this on. He also wanted to build his own fame, you know, and for posterity. And so Escandon takes this on in the 1740s. So he, you know, he 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 makes sure to survey the 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 region that would become Nuevo Santander, and 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 so this place then would begin to be settled. So by about 1800 or so. No, Santander already has, you know, something like 30,000 people. Hmm. And, and so it, it's becoming populated, you know. And so Escandon, his brilliance was that he brought families. His brilliance was that he also had a military background. And so he was able to approach this, you know, from the east and the west and coming in through the north and coming through the south. And so, you know, what, what hadn't been done in 200 years previous to Escandon with other kinds of explorers and colonizers who never really did stick in the 1500s and 1600s. They never did stick because they didn't have the strategic kind of savvy that Escandon did. And Escandon was ruthless as well. They were all ruthless, weren't they? Oh, yeah. I mean, they they were all ruthless. I mean, this is, you know, the missionaries were ruthless. uh, And and ruthless in a number of different ways. The Christianization of the native people, I shared the story with you the other day that you know, one of the ways that, like, the indigenous folks just completely get lost in this whole mestizaje, but also the Christianization of it. Like, there was this one family that a Franciscan missionary was baptizing, and they were all indigenous people, and he gave all of them the name De La Cruz. You know, so then... <laughs> of the, <laughs> the cross. De La Cruces are, you know, our progeny of that, but so are the Garzas and the Gonzaleses, you know. So we have this sense of indigeneity in us, you know, regional folks here, that has gotten lost through the years, and it got lost because of certain kinds of religious practices. So not a desirable place, but when people did come, they established these ranches, you they, know, through the porciones and the and the land grants, and then sort of absorb the indigenous folks yeah. who are, I would argue, you know, they're, they are alive and thriving to this day. Maybe a number of them don't know what kind of tribal yeah. tradition they come from. But, but the, indigeneity is all over the place in this part of the world. Well, let me no ask a question about that. If memory serves, when the English came, yeah, the the Pilgrims, Puritans came for religious reasons, but there were uh, people looking to invest in this and to, in, in the new world to uh, grow tobacco or to make money. It was not a it, it was a, a capitalist uh, enterprise at some level. Was the same? Was that the same with the Spanish? With, with the yes. king wanting wanting a return on whatever he paid? And the people who came here, somebody said, hey, this is a good place to grow cattle. And that's, they've yeah. been doing it. No, no, I mean, it's it's the allure of, you know, the building of your coffers, you know, for the crown, just like it was yeah. for the English. But, you know, they were, the people who came, you know, the, the Puritans and the religious types, they were defectors from the old country. With Spain, you have an element of that but you have the same kind of commonality of the acquisitive culture, the colonizing, the expansionist culture. This is also during a time for global supremacy between uh-huh. the British, you know, and the yeah. Spanish. So sort of the great race to, yes, to get as much land as race. you could. And then there's a lot of stuff that happens in between. You know, the, the the colonization process is like rife with complexity, and the way it looks here is that. 
this part of the world is so isolated. I mean, one oh. could argue that like the, the entire 19th century, even after Hidalgo County is created, say in 1852, right, during uh-huh. the, kind of the rise of the county systems across the state, because Texas was just like growing up, right? It had been 1848 was when it was like, you know, after the war, Texas had been annexed in 1845, but then Texas is trying to figure itself out. So with all these county systems, and in 1852, we began the rise of Hidalgo County between 1852 and the 1880s, really. Hidalgo County is like this frontier. Mm-hmm. It's like ranches, you know, but isolated ranches, much like what, you know, you mentioned Al Ramirez earlier. Well, Al's mother, Emilia Junior Ramirez, wrote about ranch life in Hidalgo County. And so she describes these very, very kind of rich ranch practices of family and yeah. you know, working the land and that sort of thing, but also isolation. This was a very isolated place, and we really don't get kind of like this this new modern thinking that is very capitalistic as well in a new way. We don't get that really until the political parties begin to take shape and then certain people come in to kind of disrupt the old ways. And yeah. one guy who was very, very influential, and this was John Klausner. You know, because John Klausner lands here about 1883 or so after he had been in Mexico working with the railroad and then was like laid off or something, so he comes here to write a stagecoach, but this guy is very ambitious. You know, by the 1890s, he becomes a county sheriff, and he buys, like, over 45,000 acres of old pasture land, you know, 25 cents an acre. Didn't he put a... Klausner had a... uh, He grew... There was a... We grow sugarcane now, but previously sugarcane had been grown at the turn of the last century, as I... Oh, sure. And Klausner was one of the ones who did it, and there was a sugar mill at San Juan, was there not? Right, it was the, the at the San Juan plantation. That was John Klausner's, and so the what he does. This is this is actually where kind of the macroeconomic and political forces really begin to shape the very regional one. So that there is, you know, even though there is this ranching culture and the sort of thing, and so you know, South Texas ranchers are are really making their livelihood yeah. by selling wool, by selling meat and cattle, and you know, engaging in tallow. Don't forget tallow and hides. Yes. No, no, for sure. What happens, however, is that there is a bubble in the economy, really an overinvestment in railroads, overinvestment in uh-huh. silver in the 1880s. Yeah. And it all comes to a head in the panic of 1893, <laughs> which is really that great economic depression of the 1890s. So what happens in 1893 changes the valley forever. This is a big kind of macro, national, and even yeah. international, because all this starts in Argentina, really. Well, this is the stuff that I, my eyes glazed over. I don't. Yeah. They must still teach it in school, but well, like, yeah, you got to you kind of get to it through reading The Wizard of Oz, really, because that's kind of what that's about. But you know, it's a big political kind of you know allegory. But but in 1893, when when the markets panic because of this over this bubble, essentially, yeah, then. The, the farmers take a huge hit, and farmers and ranchers in South Texas take a huge hit. This is when you begin to see a lot of ranchers saying, I can't sustain myself because yeah. nobody's buying my wool anymore, right? And so so this is where people like Klausner come in to buy huge tracts of land. Uh-huh. And Klausner buys like over 45,000 acres worth of pasture land, and a lot of it at 25 cents an acre. And, and he also is hit by this 1893 panic becomes very dissatisfied, and he's not necessarily hit economically, but he's hit psychologically because he 
he sees, you know what, there's no money to be made in ranching or the potential <laughs> of ranching. So what does Klausner do? He puts his 45,000 acres to work by converting, like, you know, a couple uh, hundred acres he converts into a farm site, installs the first modern irrigation system in Hidalgo County. He experiments with cotton, with sugar, with alfalfa, a variety of vegetables. And so Klausner is able to, before the turn of the century, he's on to something here, Right. Like this whole thing of Hidalgo County becoming this tropical paradise and agrarian kind of economy and stuff, point to Klausner. Point to Klausner in the 1890s. Point to the Panic of 1893. And point to how the macroeconomy is shaping the regional economy. But you also have to point to the extraordinary influence of James B. Wells as the big political patron in Cameron County. There was politics in the late... You think people? No, let me let me back up a little bit <clears throat> because I'm a kind of a linear thinker. So Klausner says this ranching stuff, as I remember, uh, selling raising cattle or sheep for that matter for fresh meat. There was no way to get it to market. They might raise it for themselves, but they couldn't ship it to Dallas or New York. But hides and tallow or the fat could could be shipped, and that's why people went into the ranching business at least until they could figure out a way to ship meat to market, which is, I'm not sure when that occurred. So uh, that's what people were doing. That's what the ranch life was about. Uh, They couldn't put them on a railroad because the railroads weren't here yet until early part of the 20th century. Uh, I didn't realize we raised sheep and goats down here, or sheep anyway, for wool. We know a lot of this. Look at Armando Alonso's work, you know, the the Tejano legacy, where he actually looks at the census. And, and and he counts how many sheep Narciso Cavazos had, you know, in 1840. He counts how many, you know, cattle and, and those kinds of things. The Census Bureau, in, I mean, the Census records indicate what you had. I didn't know that. The property. Oh, yeah. That's that's how we know about this. And, and we also know that people are selling. And in the 1890s, you know, just to get back to the Panic of 1893, that really creates kind of the catalyst, the big economic catalyst. Yeah. And so a lot of ranchers could sustain themselves, you know, with their own ganado, right? Yeah. With their own or, yeah, stock. Or cash money. To but pay but the they tax. can't sell it as much. Yeah. And so it's the inability to sell to hit the markets because, because the markets have panicked. And a lot of banks went under, you know, 500 banks or so. You nationally go wow. under by 1893 or so. And so what are you going to do then? You know, and then so there's an issue with credit, there's an issue with markets, there's an, and, then, and then, as you suggested, there is no railroad down here yet. You know, so, and that's actually the, part of the brilliance of Klausner, is that while Klausner was the county sheriff, and understand this, it is the sheriff that's the position of power. The position of greatest power really was the political patron, which was Wells. And so in Cameron County, Wells was actually able to be the chair of the whole Democratic Party in South Texas. Yeah. It is Wells who gives rise to Klausner because he protects Klausner. Klausner becomes the political patron or the political boss in Hidalgo County as the sheriff for a number of years, between 1890 when he first becomes sheriff to really about nine, 1914 or so. So I mean, there's periodic other people who become sheriff at that time, but that's when he, he said to the emerging boss, that was Baker, in Hidalgo County. Hey, why Baker? He says to Baker, Baker, now you become the sheriff, I want to become the treasurer. 
And so Clauser becomes a treasurer. That's how he gets into trouble, actually, because then he's <laughs> he's called on his use of money misappropriation, and then that's kind of the beginning of the demise of Klausner as a political figure, not of his life, because he would like move to Brownsville and live till the 1930s or so. We didn't. I mean, the, the idea of the sheriff being a big, big shot, that... That's, uh, did, did the office change, or did no. the culture change? I mean, the sheriff change? was a big shot. The sheriff was the one who controlled, you know, the politics of the region. There was a county judge all the time, but the county judge didn't really elevate in power until later in the 20th okay. century. You know, during that time, I mean, the county, the, the, the county judge also had other responsibilities, like the overseer of the schools and that kind of thing, you know, like De La Viña, Juan De La Viña was the yeah. county, you know, what the, the judge and the county superintendent in the 1890s, those kinds of things. But it's the sheriff. Wow. During what is known as a progressive era, which huh. in South Texas, you know, becomes they weren't you know, pro- almost a misnomer. Because they weren't South very Texas, progressive, those guys. <laughs> well, it, but these guys, these guys would then be the reason for the progressive era coming to South Texas. We'll continue our conversation with Francisco Guajardo. But first, let me tell you about Simmer Technology. Esparza Pest Controls Simmer Technology. Esparza Pest Control can help you with any pest from Rio Grande City to South Padre Island. And when I say any pest, termites, spiders, uh, cockroaches, mites, uh, i.e. creepy crawlers, uh, even possums. Uh, If you have a possum problem, they can fix that for you. Esparza proudly represents Simmer Technology. Simmer, C-I-M-I. R technology, continuous infectious microbial reduction technology. Recently, the Air Force used Simmer technology at some of its bases and military installations, and they're planning to use it even more. If you're a business owner, you should look into Simmer technology. Movie theaters are starting to open up. Be a great place for the use of Simmer technology. What Simmer technology does, how it works, is it releases low-grade hydrogen peroxide gas into the air and that zaps or gets rid of mold, viruses, bacteria. If you run a business, any kind of business, this is something you need to have at your place. Also, again, ask about RX-15 at Esparza Pest Control, 316-0000. That's 316, local area code 956, 316-0000. Francisco Guajardo of the Museum of South Texas History let me go back a little bit. Uh, in 1852, Texas, I guess it would be the Texas legislature, organizes Hidalgo County. And uh, all the counties here were a lot larger then than they are now. They got subdivided. And the, the uh, courthouse or the the uh, center of the county, the county seat was, was it still down at what is now Hidalgo? I'm not, I don't remember when all that right. stuff. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was called Edinburgh with an H. Okay. Edinburgh was, was the county seat. You know, for a number of years, and and it, but it's it's people like Klausner, Klausner and Sprague and Chapin concocted to be, because Sprague owned a lot of land here in what is Edinburgh today, uh-huh. and Klausner, you know, who was kind of leading the the politics, as the, you know, as the boss, he then essentially conspired. You know, he conspired with with Sprague and D. B. Chapin, you know, to to do a political power play is what it was. And so that's when they, they determined, you know, through an election, through an election that yep. was kind of a las escondidas. So they oh, yeah. It's, nobody knew about it except the people who they wanted to go vote for it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. And so that's how they're able to, 
you know, to move the county seat from the old Edinburgh, yeah. and at that time, by, by the 1900s when they moved it, it was already Hidalgo. Okay. So they moved it from Hidalgo, and so part of the reason there was that, hey, that, you know, it floods, you know, a couple times a year, and so to have the county records there is not safe, well, that's which true. was a good practical, pragmatic reason, but the deeper reason was a, a political power play. Real know, estate. Guys, <laughs> the, the what? It was real estate. Real estate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. So, uh, that didn't go well at the beginning, you understand. <laughs> there was no kind of like burgeoning economic kind of, you know, boom as a result of that. That took a while. I mean, we can even argue that, you know, we uh, we sort of like sputter along economically. But, I mean, at least today, you know, in, you know, in the 21st yeah. century, this is a county seat. It's thriving. We've got a brand new courthouse. You know, we got the university here, a hospital system. All kinds of stuff. But back then, look at those old pictures. I, you know, the oh, yeah. boosterism that I've uh, I've read about, the boosterism in pamphlets and, and magazines that were created to promote the area, full of the booster talk that I guess we learned about in school. And you look at the pictures, good man. You gotta you gotta have vision to see because it's just it's just n- no trees, land, dirt roads, and this is going to be a thriving metropolis, and it's going to be great. Uh, right. feel just buy my property. Yeah, uh, I mean it was uh in you know in some ways visionaries but but it's also visionaries who cuz you know like the entire almost you know early to mid 20th century was about selling this region. But it was it was really selling the availability of land. It was selling you know good fertile land, mm-hmm. good year-round weather and and it was selling cheap labor. When did they get uh, when did um, uh irrigated agriculture come cuz it was known the the Moors or the uh, Muslims did it in Spain. W- when when did irrigated agriculture come to the Rio Grande Valley? Number one and number two, North Mexico was the same as South Texas, a ranching economy with access to the river. These land grants had access to the river, so you could get water. But it was all ranching. When right. did but they do grow crops, irrigated crops in North Mexico now. When did that come? When did that happen? And it was all dug with Mexican labor. I'm right. assuming it was all Mexican national labor. Well, but I don't know that. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's. I mean, there's Mexican people have been here forever, right? I mean, part of the the land grants and you know, and and, and then Mexican people who are in yeah. many ways like indigenous people, right? You have this mestizaje that emerges out of this place. But there were that many people living here then. Were there, Francisco? Uh, no, I mean, no, no. This was not. No, remember this. This was an undesirable place. The despoblado, I mean, they called it, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. This this was uh, it was a tough place to live in. Yeah. But but there were though. You know, there were people. I mean, the the, the folks that are called yeah. the Pauiltecans, right? Which is really a kind of an injustice. That's a misnomer. You know, there was this Mexican historian named Orozco Iberra who called all the indigenous people here Coahuilteca <laughs> when he wrote his like great history of Mexico. I actually thought they'd all been killed off. No, no, no. Or died no. off anyway. Yeah, no, no. There's a no, no. Native, native people are are around indigenous people. Yeah, I mean this this is uh I I think it's one of the misinterpretations of history is that indigenous people in this part of the world were killed off, you know, genocidally or or inter, I mean, there was a lot of intermarrying for sure. I was thinking of disease. Were the Tarakwans, which which one, which of the Indians didn't have, at least as I read, much culture? They wandered around, which was yeah, not. Yeah, I mean, like, the, you know, the hunter gathering kind of you know experience is 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 
is a long-lasting experience. You know, because this was not really a place for, for a lot of settlement. Yeah. In fact, we see in the work of Martin Salinas, you know, who's an archaeologist and, and historian, we see that that the, the, the archaeology shows us that the settlements really, like, three, four thousand years ago, were yeah. mostly up around Laredo. And really? so the settlements are not as much here in what we call the valley today. Why is that? You know? Yeah, well... You know, this this was, like, you begin to see an expression of the Delta, like, around La Jolla. And so it's not only the expression of the Delta that, like, resacas and that sort of thing, but you also see what, in, in, the, in the archaeology, that there were these riparian forests 10 miles or more north of the river and south of the river. What's a riparian, just so... Water. Yeah, like right by the river, right? Right by a body of water is a forest that, that grows, un bosque, right by a body of water. Because before the dams, this was flooded twice yeah. a year, yeah. really before modernity. You know, and so, and it was very aggressive, it was very thick, but above that, you know, was was much more habitable area. To the north of it, you mean? To the north of, yes, to the north of. So and if you so lived we, on the river, you're going to get flooded a couple times a year. Yes, and so, you know, you're not going to settle there because you're going to get flooded, right? Which is actually, interestingly, the the argument for moving the courthouse. So there was a historical reason as well. I mean, they may not have known the history, but they, they knew this floods a couple times a year. That's true in North Mexico, too, no? Be yeah, same. yeah, yeah. Same, same but, but in response to, like, what kind of irrigation systems come in, I mean, when we get a Escandón coming, we we see we see small scale agriculture being practiced, but Escandón's men are also writing about because you know he brought scribes as well. Huh. They're writing about this is not a place for large scale agriculture. This is a place <laughs> for ranching, you know. And that's that's something that Klausner and his type would just completely violate. Did they? Know, because did they have they, to send reports back to? Uh, I'm just. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. They they had to send reports. Escandón had to send reports. In fact, it's one of the way that Escandón gets into trouble and becomes, like, decommissioned, you know, because the reports were not favorable to to the Viceroy. And, uh. and so then, wait, what happened here, Escandón? You promised to bring in so much and that you would use only so much and that we needed to invest only so much, but you're asking for, like, two million, you know, whatever, instead of what you said you only needed, you know, half a million. Well, that's where I got here, Mr. Viceroy. I got here and there's... It sucks. <laughs> this became very expensive and, and, and more yeah. pricey than the crown anticipated for Escandón. And so there were reports, and it is why we're able to know about some of this. And some of that is, uh, you know, in the archives in Sevilla. <laughs> some of it is in the archives in Mexico City. Some of it is in the archives in, in Ciudad Victoria. And so Armando Alonso has actually done all of that wow. research and has written you know, very compelling you know, historiography on this. I guess it's but, good that the Spanish were such terrible, such notorious bureaucrats, right? Everything in... Oh, yeah. No, it was very, very bureaucratized. That is that is for sure. It's in, in, in an interesting way, it is actually what, you know, just to bring it to the progressive era, it, it's it's what Wells hated. Really? You know, it's what the closers of the world hated. They hated this kind of, you know, bureaucracies and regulations and, you know, what the progressive era would bring. <laughs> but the progressive era would bring... Your regulations, because you know the human greed had run amok. Well, yeah, it was a refl- it was wasn't we were taught it was a reaction to the Gilded Age, the excesses sure. of John D. Rockefeller, et cetera. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it is, and and so 
you know, the John D. Rockefellers, like the mini Rockefellers, you know, were here in the Valley. Of course, they didn't amass huge wealth like Rockefeller did, but but they were using similar practices, ruthless practices. Is it better to have a, a big pile and live on Madison Avenue in New York or to be the uh, owner of uh, 50,000 acres of ranch land in South Texas and thus be king of your own, as I understand the social system, maybe the legal system, uh, to, to be to be lord of uh, all that you see you're the you're you own it you're in charge of it you're a judge jury and executioner at least that was the way in in the early days of feudalism as i understand it in england anyway you, you were the you were it you you answered only the king and but they didn't even have that kind of structure here which yeah, was better yeah. it, well the the underbelly of that is that you're able to be king you're able to be lord you're able to be patron because you're doing it on the backs of a bunch of people yeah, well, that's that's the underbelly of this, and this is actually part of the history of this region, is that you know the laborers have built this place, you know, and mostly they have been Mexican laborers from south of the border, but also laborers who were already you know Mexican American. Yeah, and, well, and, there was and no look, other. I mean, we no, no. I mean, no, we didn't the, import the, uh, the Irish. We didn't import. I'm I'm guessing here. There were no Irish. We didn't import black people. Uh, there were slaves who came through here to get away, right? But yeah, there, that's it's an interesting story there because I think you're right that there is no importation of another kind of group, you know, and and there isn't because they, you don't need it, yeah, because you have an availability of of you know of wage labor, I mean, uh, cheap labor here, but there is evidence though, you know, especially in those slave narratives oh. that were collected during the Great Depression in the 1930s, you yeah. know, during the FDR New Deal, they contracted writers and scholars who were out of work, and they went and they found as many former slaves as they could find, living former slaves. So they were, you know, men and women in their 70s and 80s and even into their 90s, and, and so they conducted all this, the, the slave narratives is what it's called, and huh. that's in the National Archives. And so when you look at some of those who, who talked about being in South Texas, extraordinary stories, extraordinary stories of, you know, uh, of people who who were slaves, yeah, and had come down to the valley, and then they tell stories about being here in the 1870s, 1880s, wow. you know, even in the 1850s, even before the war. Wow. Yeah, extraordinary stuff that we know. So there were black people here, that's for sure. Even before, you know, the second great migration of the 1920s that builds, say, the black community in Edinburgh, the black community in San Benito and Brownsville and Harlingen. It, those are the newcomers, you know, of, of the black community. But there were black people here even before who came from, you know, from, from the South. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then Texas, of course, was a slave state. So and don't, uh, listener, don't, the thing that amazed me, I guess astounded me, was you have people searching that movie Django Unchained. <clears throat> the protagonist, the, the, the Anglo guy, white guy, is a, actually a German national. He's an actor. And he's looking for runaway slaves because he collects a, he collects a fee, and boy, it stuck in their crawl when a slave got away from them, so they would pay to get them back. And uh, people, I th- I read they came all the way down here, and law enforcement would also help out by catching slaves. Um, yeah. But I'll, so in, in we're going to run out. Of, we're going to run out of time. I don't want to yeah, vex the listener. So we got the progressive era. You have the bandit, what I call the bandit predations, which is um, which is a reaction to a reaction. Yeah, that's a reaction because in the in the early 1900s, Texas Rangers, who were the you know the arm of the law here, you know when there was very little law, 
then you're behaving in certain ways, and so that then elicited a reaction from a lot of people. And so that's, yeah. I mean, going back to the 1850s and 60s with, with Cheno Cortina, and then you get the bandits, the so-called bandits in, yeah. in the 1900s, a reaction. So there's always a cause and effect here. Yeah. And then the Rangers overreact to that. And then J.T. Canales comes in and writes legislation, right, to sort of like reform the, the bandits. And J.T. Canales, by the way, was not good news for, for James B. Wells. Because uh, he had been an acolyte of Wells. Wells had helped him into office, hadn't he? And then he and, and yeah. then he would turn progressive, and then he would say, "James B. Wells, this patron politics is not yeah. good for my people." Yeah. And so, so then he would be part of the beginning of the demise of Wells. Jose Canales, J. And J. Canales. the the demise of uh, the patron system of voting and controlling votes, paying the poll tax. So, yes. You, and and I, I'm also assuming. Um, Rising education levels, rising um, uh, self-confidence. Uh, I mean, LULAC was started between the wars, and it was, as I understand, it was like, hey, we're we're Americans, we're full citizens. By God, we need a place at the table. The farmers have come down here, and they're this this row crop agriculture is um, is doing real good. I guess um, you certainly see the pictures of the numbers of the the, the stuff in the fields. Uh, I saw a postcard of rail cars north of Edinburgh. They're all headed north on the railroad, and they've stopped in front of ice houses so they could ice down their produce as it was shipped to market. And that brought a certain kind of prosperity. Um, yeah, but there's no, how, there's no us without them. There's no us without... We're, no, that's right. It, it's, it's a complex system. It's integrated, you know, I think in terms of the population groups and in terms of the different economies, because yeah. it's ranching and, and agriculture, you know, kind of pushing back on each other and, and it would be agriculture that would that would predominate and but that was part of the vision of people like you know the clausers of the world and uh, and that creates a society you know where the policies now reflect that the social structures reflect yeah. that you know a lot of the Mexican kids didn't go to school in the early part of the century some did but many of them were more needed for labor yeah. well until my in my youth, people didn't. They they had to work. They had to That's contribute right. whatever the wage was to. Uh, yeah, and 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 your youth is just like yesterday, really. I mean, you're yeah. you know you were growing Thank up you. in the in the in the fifties and sixties and South Texas and seventies. Time of great great change, and um, the the thing that's always I keep thinking is yeah, there was a lot of change, but there's also a lot of um, th- there were things that never changed. Mm-hmm. They were always there, the backbone, um, and no one pays. You know, I guess no no one. Uh, it's not very chamber of commerce to say, let's go down and look at rows of cabbage deer. Uh, no, you want to go to the ranches and uh, the mythology of the ranch, the, um, uh, the romance of the ranch, not the god-awful 12 hours a day, horrible, sweated out kind of stuff, which is, you know, I guess that's ranching. Um, I'll tell you the one thing, Davis, and, and we can end on this. The one thing that, that has not changed is exactly what Cabeza de Vaca noted in his Relación that he published, you know, as part of his journey through here, right? An mm-hmm. errant journey. But he wrote that the Native people in this part of the world treated their young better than any other that he had seen anywhere in the world. You're kidding me. So what Cabeza de Vaca says, yeah, he's like really heavily implying the whole idea of family huh. with the indigenous people here. So I would argue that this, this is almost in, in the social DNA of people who grow up around here like this value of children value of family and it's hmm. I, it's you know that's undeniable 
in the research, yeah. in the anecdotes, and in the literature. I wrote that in 1542 Good about Lord. his observation of the Native people here in the 1520s and 30s. You, that has not changed. You can pursue this uh, with your eyes at the Museum of South Texas History. It's an award-winning museum. Uh, there's always more information about how people lived being uh, being discovered, being uh, written up, and uh, I know the Museum of South Texas History would like to have, as any local historical museum, would like to have anything that you want to get rid of, letters, books, anything like that, let them take first pass at it so they can build their archives so we can know more about how we lived down here. We're all heirs to this, um, whether you came from Scotland or the Basque country in Spain. Francisco Guajardo, thank you very much for your time. In future episodes, we're going to cover what made Star County, well, is it the star of the Rio Grande Valley? Where does the word star, where did they get that name? Was there a Mr. Star somewhere? And why is it such a seminal county for uh, in the history of the rest of the counties? We'll be looking at Star County with uh, a man whose family has been there for generations. Thanks for listening to Into the RGV, sponsored by Esparza Pest Control, Simmer Technology. Call them at 956-316-0000. Again, Esparza Pest Control's Simmer Technology at 956-316-0000.